0: Hello, hello, everyone, hola, hola. Welcome to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I'm your sis, Melanie White-Evans. I'm a bilingual pediatric speech-language pathologist and cultural compatibility consultant here to learn with you and discuss more ways we can uplift culturally diverse communities in our professions and day-to-day lives. This podcast is for you. If you're ready to address the disparities in the United States healthcare and academic systems, and are looking for more ways you can be culturally competent in your careers. Tune in weekly as I introduce mind-shifting topics that will support service-based professionals and students alike on our cultural competency journeys. Let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, Melanie here. So before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about the backstory of why this is important. This topic is about preventing violence in workplace and educational healthcare environments. Obviously as speech language pathologists and other healthcare providers listening to this podcast, we work in this setting and we are about to go back into full school mode academic mode if you work at university departments. I will say coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, we've had situations like the St. Francis tragedy where three hospital personnel have passed away because of a disgruntled patient. And I brought my dad on the show. He is a retired police officer from the Tulsa Police Department, currently serves as the chief of police for OU Tulsa a University. And outside of that, he does his own work and research to make sure that communities are safe. So I'm so excited for you all to get into today's episode. If you want to look at the visual episode, please go to youtube.com. I'll put the link in the bio for the live replay. Until then, to the Pediatric Speech Sisters show, I am here live with Walter J. Evan. If you are wondering, about our winning smiles. Yes, this is my father, but he's a very brilliant man in law enforcement. And unfortunately we've been having some violences in workplace settings. I know a lot of us have heard about what happened in St. Francis here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, our state, and what happened in Baldy and even just going all the way back to Columbine, but they're happening a lot more frequently. As speech pathologists or service providers and educators listening to this, we're not very well trained. Yes, we might go through drills, but we're not exactly trained on exactly what to do. We're just taught to, what's the term dad, run? Run, hide and fight. Run, hide and fight. But what exactly does that mean? So I wanted to bring him on here So that way he can give us some details in the rundown. Before we get started, I do just want to have a trigger warning statement because we will be using words like workplace violence, and some people may have actually gone through these traumatic experiences. So we do appreciate your patience in advance with this. And at the same time, we're very excited to be sharing this with the community. All right, Dad, I'll let you go ahead.
1: So I'm going to let you more or less drive the train on this, Melanie, before we do that is something I absolutely must do. And that is, I have to really have to tip my hat off to people who are in your profession, speech and language pathology. I'm going to go ahead and tell a quick story to your audience. They may or may not know it, but one of the things that people may not know is that your mother and I were really concerned that you were not going to be able to speak. Uh, you know, to your audience, uh, Melanie was three years old. It wasn't that she would speak, but you couldn't understand her. But she wouldn't even utter a word, and we were really frightened. And we sent her to a speech and language pathologist. And within a short period of time, this lady worked miracles. And the same thing with my granddaughter, Melanie's niece. Same thing. She was five or six years old, and you she would speak, but you could not understand a thing that she would say. And again, we took her to a speech and language pathologist. So all of you are miracle workers. And I think the world is a much better place because of you. So I just wanted to give you a shout out and tip my hat
0: to you. Well, thank you, dad. I'm sure a lot of us are happy to hear that. And y'all, he's not just saying that because he's my dad. He means. (laughs) I always say, I wish that he still had the IEP that I had when I was a kid, because even though I joined the profession, I didn't even think about joining the profession until college. I didn't reference it to my own experience with a speech-language pathologist, so it is one of my favorite victory stories, so to speak, to tell clients who are nervous to find yeah. their kids in speech therapy. So, Dad, would you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Sure, sure. Well, my name is Walter Evans. My current assignment is I'm the chief of police for the University of Oklahoma-Tulsa campus police department. I have been doing this job for nine years, almost going on 10 years. Before that, I've had basically what would amount to two parallel careers. And just to give you some of my background, I started out going to college just like everybody, but because I had so many financial difficulties as a younger person, I dropped out of college and joined the army for four years. And after my army career, was over. I was going to go back to college to finish my last year, but I was broke. So one of the things that I did was I joined the Oklahoma Army National Guard to help supplement my income. And because, of course, since I had three years of college, they said, well, listen, you know, you really need to join an officer training program. So I joined the officer training program I was planning on only staying in the military another two or three years, but it ended up being a 23-year career. So I paralleled that career with becoming a Tulsa police officer. And I, thank God, I rose to the highest ranks in the department, commanded some very large divisions. I retired and became a chief of police for all U Tulsa.
0: Well, thank you, Dad, for all you do. That does bring me to my next question. What is your why? What got you started in the profession? Or really, why did you keep going with it? What motivates you to get up and go to work every day?
1: I have a heart for service. And that might sound sort of corny to some people, but I can attribute that to your grandmother. My mother was a very service oriented. Type of woman. She would give you the shirt off of her back. She would work to her own detriment in order to take care of other people. I do not have the kind of drive that she had, but I can say some of that rubbed off on me. So the police profession and the United States military, those are service professions. I never really got hooked into the power trip thing, or as some people do, or The prestige, even though there's quite a bit of prestige with being in this noble profession, those are not my motivators. My biggest motivator was that it gave me an opportunity to give back to people. I I always say that, as for me, I'm just truly blessed that I've had an opportunity to be a part of something that's much bigger than myself. And so that's what motivates me to get up every day, because there are challenges, just like everything else Uh And I hear Duke and Duke oh. and, and Chief are uh, trying to get your attention.
0: Yes, yes. I, I'm going to put it on mute when you talk. Cause, yeah. Well, thank you for that, Dad. Definitely not corny to us. We all join the field and really stay in the field because of our service hearts because it's not an easy job. And I know that just watching you growing up, you have not had an easy job whatsoever. I know that one of your champion moments in your career, which I know your humble heart wouldn't consider a champion moment just because it's a bit of a tragedy, but you really got to catch the,
1: what do you call them? Oh, uh, the Good Friday shooters.
0: Yes, the Good Friday shootings. Yes, yeah, so you got to, I I didn't want to call them enemies. I don't know what the correct term is in your field.
1: We will call them assailants.
0: Assailants, okay. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that, just like a brief background on that moment sure sure
1: it was in 2012 i believe it was at that time i was the commander for the detective division and over the easter holiday on good friday we had two white supremacists who went into the black community and started murdering black people they shot and killed one and then very shortly after that they shot two others but They didn't kill them. And then they shot and killed two more people after that. And I guess they decided their work for the night was done. The community was in an uproar. Our detectives were on the case and we were a little bit disorganized. So the chief at the time called me and said, I want you to stand up a multi jurisdictional task force and organize this. So that's exactly what I did. So I was the task force commander. We organized it, and one of the things that I did that we had not done was I set up an intelligence unit, and I pulled all of our intelligence officers from all over the city and created one intelligence unit, and these guys are the best of the best, and they were able to drill down all the data to basically determine where these guys were located, and just to make a long story short, they found them very quickly, and then we were able to effect an arrest on them. You see that show, 48 Hours, we literally caught those guys in just under 48 hours.
0: What a blessing to the victim's families, too, that you're uh, able to catch them uh, as soon as possible. Because I do remember the Tulsa community was very afraid, especially the North Tulsa community, very afraid with those guys uh, the uh, So thank you for uh, that. Uh, that so let's get into the nitty-gritty of the episode and why we are here so when we talk about workplace and school illnesses what would you say is the first thing that speech pathologists should have in mind
1: one of the things with speech pathologists whether you're going to be in a school setting whether you're going to be in a clinical setting whether you are a professor at a university All of those things, understand this, that all of these settings are what we call soft targets. So let's take where I work, for example, we are in a university setting. It's very large. It's very open. Anybody can walk on the campus at any point in time that they want to. And anybody can walk in any building that they want. And so regardless of what level you are in your profession, you can very easily become a target. But one of the things that I've noticed in watching you and the work that you've done for the past couple of years, you work in a K-12 setting quite a bit, or you work in a K-12 setting. And in those settings, there are a lot of opportunities to basically recognize the warning signs of an attack that is about to take place. And there's plenty of opportunities to stop it before it happens. You don't have to be a trained law enforcement official, but the FBI has done a tremendous amount of research, and so has the United States Secret Service, to determine different ways you could avert attacks in schools. Biggest thing and the common denominator to all of this is a term that we refer to as leakage. What leakage is, is when you are dealing with a student, for example, those students will start to trust you because you are really invested into their lives. And so leakage can occur in two ways. Number one, there could be a student who is thinking about doing an attack that could leak that information to you. Or there could be a student who trusts you who is a trusted friend of a would-be attacker. The attacker leaks the information to you and then they come to you and leak that to you. So basically leakage is nothing more than either the attacker themselves or someone who's close to the attacker giving out information that an attack might be imminent.
0: So that does bring to my next question when it comes to even soft targets would that be the common denominator of all of these other violent happening within the United States?
1: Yes, yes it is. The thing of it is that it's very difficult to have a school environment, whether it be K-12 or an institution of higher education. It does not promote learning when the students have to come to class or even when the employees have to come to work. And the place looks like Fort Knox, when you have armed police and security officers walking around with automatic weapons or or semi-automatic rifles, uh, when there's barricades when there's barbed wire and sandbags, kind of joking. But the point that I'm making is that you don't, and it's just not conducive to a positive learning environment. Anytime that someone has to come in that environment and you see all the signs and all the signs that says this place is not safe. So now you've got people wondering, am I really safe in this environment? So it's very difficult to do those things or to build your structures that way. But the bottom line is that this is the world that we're living in. So there's two different schools of thought on that. Some groups think that we should fortify our schools like Fort Knox. And then there are some that say we should have the exact opposite and that we should use other strategies in order to make our environment much safer. The truth is, no matter what you do, if someone is really motivated to wreak havoc in your environment, once they've made that decision, they can find a way to breach whatever you put in place. But there are a lot of things that you can do, perhaps, to make them have a second thought about even giving it, making an attack to begin with, especially if it is someone that you know.
0: Well, what would be the common signs? And I'm talking from the standpoint of, of course, speech pathologists in the schools who have students who might plan to attack and also speech pathologists in workplace settings who might have colleagues.
1: Okay. okay. I'll try to cover this briefly because there's so much There's so much information on this. There, there are several books that I would certainly recommend that people read to give them some insights, but just really briefly, first of all, let me just talk about the different types of violence that you would see in a workplace setting anyway. And these are workplace violence types that are categorized by the occupational safety and health administration or OSHA. So what they talk about is type one is where someone can come into your environment, they don't even know you, you're just a target of opportunity. Type two is when you have a disgruntled customer. Uh, and, I, and let me take, let me pause for a second, because it's interesting that you would mention St. Francis. I don't know if you would remember this or not, but tomorrow is the first year anniversary of St. Francis shooting. Wow. And, and, what, and what your audience may not know is that St. Francis is affiliated with our university because part of our university is a medical school. St. Francis Hospital trains our residents, and they're only five blocks from this campus. In fact, that's why I'm wearing my pink tie today because the hospital is painted pink, always has been. And so, you know, we're doing that in deference to them. The St. Francis shooting was a disgruntled patient, which is the same thing as a disgruntled customer, which is the type two. Then type three is employee disputes or disgruntled employees or past employees. And then type four is domestic violence or relationship violence. So those are all things that you will see in a workplace setting almost every single day. Um, but um, and I'm sorry, Melody, that was another part of that question that you asked, and I just went on and on. But well,
0: well, no, um, you really answered it. The biggest question too is what that would look like. That's really what's coming to my mind. So, as speech pathologists or people who are working with people, oh, not necessarily on guard. Okay,
1: okay, yeah. That was the other piece. And so one of the things that that what the the data is showing us is you will have an opportunity because of the relationships that you'll build with your students to see some things that might be concerning. And you'll hear the term see something, say something. Some people they've been using that phrase for so long it's become white noise to a lot of people, but it is really important that when you see something you've got to say something because you basically become a bystander. Now, here's some of the things that you might see. Any one of these things by itself might not mean a whole lot, but if you combine it with a lot of other things, it gives an opportunity for more skilled and and more trained people to take a harder look at it. So for example if you have a student who is experiencing trauma at home and they talk about the trauma at home or if you see a student that has a written work assignment and in that work assignment it's very deranged or it talks about violence or if those writings or the conversations say things that show an interest in things like former mass shootings or hurting other people those types of things. If you see or hear your students start to show a great deal of interest in firearms, that is, those are red flags. So any one of those things that you would see by itself, you might go, yeah, not that big of a deal. And they probably are not a big deal. I played violent video games ever since I was able to play violent video games, but that doesn't mean that I'm gonna resort to violence. So because you have a student that has an interest in call to duty, that does not mean that they are going to go out and commit a mass shooting. But when you start to combine all these things and then they start talking about specific things, now it's time to say something. Many schools, Many communities, and especially in university settings will have threat management teams. And so your job as an employee of the school or a staff member is to speak to a responsible person who might be a member of the threat management team, and they will build a case so that they can perhaps intervene. The end goal, and especially when it comes to students, the end goal is never to throw them in jail. The end goal is for them to graduate and be productive members of society. And if they're having some issues that might make them do violent acts, we have to intervene. We'd be remiss if we did not intervene with
0: them. I really appreciate how you said that the goal isn't to throw them away, put them away, so to speak, but to make sure that they become active members of society and even— in a way, intervene as rehab for them. Just because from a clinical perspective, I'm thinking, first of all, if you're seeing these children going through them, I have one particular student in mind now, I'd be nervous to call the cops or anything on him because I know what's going on at home. So instead, it would be wise to at least send him to the counselor or have an interdisciplinary team approach rather than just going straight to the police. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Law enforcement has its purpose, but we should be about, I would say about 99% of the time, we should be the, in case of trouble, break glass kind of group. We should never be the first result unless everyone is in imminent danger, which generally that's not gonna be the case. Let me explain to you what the FBI and the secret service and the association of threat management professionals and a lot of behavioral scientists talk about pathways and one of the things that they talk about is pathway to violence. And so it's, if you can envision it being a stair step that people don't just snap, but there is actually a series of things that they go through that makes them get to the point of where they want to commit a violent act. Well, the thing of it is that if you can think of it as a stair step with about six steps, steps two, three, and maybe up to four, in those different steps, there's plenty of opportunities to intervene and to make that person whole. Law enforcement generally should not be directly involved until step five or maybe step six for certain. My point being, if you introduce law enforcement at step one, it probably will not work. It will be counterproductive. So we should always be there to use the the tools and resources that we have to kind of help the multidisciplinary team have a much better picture of what they're dealing with, but law enforcement should never be the first response, so to speak, unless there is imminent danger.
0: Well, I know when we were talking a bit about this, you did have some specific strategies that I really want the audience to know. Um, so, and forgive me, you're going to have to remind me there was run, fight and fight, right? Okay. run,
1: Run, hide and fight.
0: Run, hide, fight. Then the other one is evaluation, mitigation, preparation.
1: Well, that was something that I've been, I developed as I'm as I was trying to think of a way to train people on how to take a before, during, and after approach. Because run, hide, fight is in the during stage. That's when uh, the fight, so to speak, is underway, but All the other things that we just talked about are in the before stage. So in other words, the evaluate, the mitigate, sometimes I make a joke of it and say, evaluate, mitigate, and preparate, (laughs) but you evaluate, you mitigate, you prepare. All of those are things that you do before the event actually happens. And so just here's a couple of things, not an exhaustive list, but here are some of the things that I've recommended and I've observed over my career that are very helpful. The very first thing that you must do is you must know your organization's emergency plans. I just taught a class and it's interesting you would bring that up because I just taught this class to our senior research team. Now, these are probably some of the most brilliant people on our campus a team of about eight research head of research and all of his staff. These are the ones that help develop, that conduct research to try to find, to try to develop vaccines. That's, they have animal labs. They have anatomy labs. They do pathology. They very brilliant people. I taught active shooter response and that strategy that we're talking about now, I taught this to them yesterday. And one of the first things I asked, I said, how many of you read our emergency response plan for the university? Not one raised his hand, not one. The head of research, who is probably one of the most brilliant guys that I know. And he was telling me all this stuff about how the brain works and all of this. Even he didn't take time to read it because people are busy, but when the event happens, You don't have time to read a book. So what you have to do is, first of all, understand what your organization wants you to do in those situations. Then the next thing that you have to do is that if you see gaps in the plans, if you see things in your physical spaces or your physical structures that would not help you survive an attack, then you need to fix those things. Whatever you can fix on your own, you fix on your own. Whatever you have to refer to your higher organization, facilities, maintenance, whatever, you have to have to fix those things. And I'll give you, I'll give you a good example is uh, like Uvalde. Uh, the reason that people were able to get into Uvalde was because of an open door. Now, everybody knew that door was open. Lots of people knew that door was open, but they, no one did anything about it. Somebody should have called facilities right then and said, hey, could you come and lock this door? Or if the lock were broken, could you replace this lock? Same thing for those in your audience who are in higher education. Some of them may or may not know about the Department of Education has this thing that is called the Clery Law. It's based on the Clery Act. And this is based on a young girl at Lehigh University named Jean Cleary in 1986, that was a door that was propped open, and a young man sneaked in there and sexually assaulted her and murdered her, and so now the whole world for higher education has changed because of that one incident when it could have been resolved by just somebody saying, keep this door locked. So, those are things that you do to mitigate some of the risk, and finally, you got to prepare. You always have to put your mind through the what if. That... If I'm sitting in class and gunfire goes out, what would I do? If I'm in my office with a student, what should I do? If I'm sitting in the lunch room, what should I do? If I'm in the parking lot, what should I do? And those are all the before things, and you rehearse those things over and over and over again. Then you get to the jury, which is that's to run, hide, and fight. And the after portion is it's not over until it's over. There will be there will be people hurt. There will be people killed. There will be uh, families that would need to be reunited. Buildings that you work in every single day will be shut down while they're conducting the investigation. And even after the investigation is over, nobody's who's going to want to go in that building until it is renovated, all the bullet holes removed all of those different things. And so you have to be a part of that process even after the last round is fired. So that's how that works.
0: Well, let's talk about the, what happened afterwards. Like you said, there's a lot of cleanup, there's a lot of trauma, and so much more. So what can we do after an attack to ensure community healing? Well,
1: one of the... Good things is administrators in the K-12 schools and administrators in institutions of higher education, they get it. They recognize the fact that if someone goes through that, they are really going to be freaked out. And so they will use contract services all the time to make sure that all of those services are available to individuals. Case in point. What happened at St. Francis did not happen on our campus, but it was five blocks away. And many people, many of the physicians on our campus work directly with the two of the physicians that were killed. And so what we did was that we offered a lot of services, counseling and therapy and all of that, to try to make those people be whole again. Those are things that will certainly be available to them. There would definitely be a change in operation. One of the things that we did was because it was such a traumatic event. And I would tell you, I applaud the Dean of our medical school for what he did. And I was actually involved in it. About two days after the shooting, we went into this big auditorium. And that place was packed That we piped in Oklahoma city as well, because half of our medical school is in Oklahoma city and the other half is in Tulsa. Had a huge audience in Oklahoma city. And we talked about that event. And there was a panel with myself, with the Dean of the medical school, with someone from our risk management department, Dean of students. And I think and it was one other person and somebody from a legal team, I think it was. And so what we did was we set up a panel and we talked about different things, but we had a big question and answer session. And this thing went on for about 90 minutes. I was just amazed. It was well-attended and not only that, but there was just so doggone many questions that were asked because people were concerned about their safety. But they were also concerned about their colleagues and so they gave us an opportunity to try to be part of the healing process and i actually found out later on that was very effective
0: that's excellent thank you so much for sharing that one thing i just wanted to circle back to is i remember i was going to my niece's picnic day on their last day of school and Mm -hmm. I noticed even though there are these things happening around the country, especially sadly in elementary schools of all places, the school was very insecure. Anybody could have walked in, anybody could have come to the playground, walked into the playground, walked into the school. We were able to pick up my nieces without really signing off, or they weren't checking ID necessarily. They just knew that we were together because my nieces were with us, holding on to us like they knew us. And so, What can you say to school officials on ways that we can move forward and just other changes that you would like to see moving forward in this country when it comes to that?
1: Well, I always say train and train without ceasing. And the reason that I say that is because of my military background. When I was in the army, and especially when I was on active duty, That's all we did. I served during the cold war. We were always afraid that we were going to get nuked by the Russians. So we trained constantly. One of the benefits of training is as you train, you will identify gaps. And so you have to be honest with yourself and you have to look at every situation as and ask yourself the question, Hmm, what if this happened now? You don't always have to have this huge live training event with everybody in the world participating. You can sit around at a staff meeting and ask the very question that you just asked me and somebody who, somebody else observed what you just observed. And they should ask a responsible person, you know, I didn't really feel safe at that event the other day. Uh, Kids were all over the place. There was no security that I could see of, armed or unarmed. There were no staff members that were assigned to watch for specific things. I noticed that there were kids that were walking away with people that maybe we are familiar with them, but did we truly have systems in place to make sure that you did not have a kid walking off with somebody who had nefarious intent so this is what i say is that those things are always going to happen but you always have to keep reevaluating it because you're never going to be perfect you can't think of every single thing in the moment but every single time you see something play the what if game and when you identify gaps don't just say "Hmm, yeah that was that was pretty bad on to the next thing No, no, you have to have a serious, concerted effort to try to fix any gap. And you always have to have these things at the forefront of everybody's mind because what you want is for your whole team to embrace a safety mindset. When I first came here at the University of Oklahoma, it was not a police department. It was a security team. And we created a police department and I came from the Tulsa police department. And plus, like I said, I have a military background and I'm accustomed to force protection measures. And when I looked around the campus, I went, my goodness, I I hired a consultant to come in and do an assessment of the campus. And I made recommendations and I'm telling you, it was an uphill climb to get us to where we are today. Because when people, because when you start talking safety, what that also means for people who do not practice safety, it means inconvenience. Mm -hmm. So if I'm accustomed, for example, to walking, parking my vehicle by the J wing of of, of the main academic building and walking around into the building and the door is open, and now you're going to tell me that. We're locking that side door and making everybody walk through a single point of entry. Now that person has to park somewhere else or walk a few extra steps, and it's inconvenient and they don't like it. If you leave J Wing door open, rather, what that means is that somebody can just walk in undetected and have complete command of your builder. Sometimes they just go in just to steal stuff, and that's what I mean, that's not okay, but. Somebody stealing property, you can always replace, but you don't want somebody to come in and hurt somebody. So I gave you that story basically to say, constantly reevaluate and that's the evaluation and then when you see gaps, you need to mitigate those risks.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dad, for sharing this information with the speech community. I know that this isn't, like I said, this is not something that we just typically think about or study in our profession. So I know that you cooked up a little something for us. Can you tell us about that? That I could do what? You cooked up a little something for us. Can you tell us about that? What do you mean? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a PowerPoint presentation. Oh yeah yeah for us that you put oh. Something- Okay, yeah. He really kicks y'all. That's why he was confused. He actually really does think. But Uh, I
1: I do, I do. Something I truly enjoy. (laughs) But uh, one of the things that I do, I I do some consulting work for private industry. And so I have a consulting business. And one of the things I'm going to give to you and all of your audience, I'm, I'm gonna give a couple of freebies. And so I'm gonna give a short video, It's only five minutes, so I think anybody can spare five minutes, but at least in no one else's mind but mine, I think it's really impactful. This video, it talks about everything we just talked about today in about five minutes. And of course, if anybody wants to have any further conversations with me, I'd be more than happy to do that. So I know people learn things differently, so I'll give you a video, but I'll also give you some written materials. Also, there's a lot of links to a lot of materials that I've studied through the years, and we'll make sure we provide those links for you. The good thing about it is that you don't have to go back and look at all the original sources. You can look at summaries that are done by people who are very, very well respected in the academic communities where they've done all the research, they've validated every single thing. Everything that they'll talk about has been validated by empirical evidence. And so with all of that, you can go back and look at those summaries and it will give you a good idea of where you are for those of you who work in K-12. And you can go back to your administrators and, and have discussions about that. And those of you who work in IHE, you can do the same thing. Or for those of you who are in private industry, I'm assuming that that some of your audience is in private industry and they'll need to sit and take a look at their own workspaces to see if there's some things that they need to evaluate and mitigate and prepare for.
0: So what's IHE? Institutions
1: of Higher Education.
0: Okay. And private industry would be private practice, outpatient?
1: Yes, exactly. So if you happen to have your own clinic or if you work in, say, a hospital setting, that's private industry.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing these free resources with us. It's highly needed in our field. How can we find you? If anyone wants to connect with you, ask you more questions, and even reach out on behalf of their campuses.
1: Okay. There's two ways to reach me. One way is through my email, which is info, I-N-F-O, at OrionMethods, O-R-I-O-N-M-E-T-H-O-D-S, OrionMethods.com. Or you could just look at my website, which is orionmethods.com.
0: Well, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to everyone looking back on this episode, looking back at the replay. I know that this is going to change a lot. It's not a flowery conversation, but it's a very real conversation. So I thank you for spending time out of your busy workday as well, Dad, and coming to talk to my audience.
1: And I want to thank you for having me. And uh, it was a really enjoyable time. Thank you so much, sweetie.
0: (laughs) All right, dad. Well, thank you all for watching this live. I will see you all on Saturday where I talk to Jermaine. I'm definitely communicating. Bye, fan. Bye, daddy. Bye-bye. Well, family, that's the episode. What did you think? Wherever you're listening, I'd appreciate if you left a review. Your feedback means a lot to me and helps me find more ways to help you on your journeys. If you're looking for more ways to expand your cultural compatibility in your clinical practices, follow me on Instagram at Pediatric Speech Sister and check out my newsletter for more show updates. I'll include all these links in the show notes. Until then, I'll see you next week.